Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast on global antitrust litigation. Uh, this podcast relates to the globalization of antitrust mass claims. My name is Mark Tansom. I'm one of Freshfield's co-chairs of our global antitrust litigation group. I'm very pleased to be joined today by my partners, Julie Elmer from Washington, D.C., uh, Natalia Gomez from our Madrid office, and Roman Malman from our German practice. Today's subject is, as I say, the globalization of antitrust mass claims. This podcast actually accompanies a client webinar series we've been running. We recently did a client webinar um, going into this subject in quite some detail. And this podcast, uh, the idea is that we'll focus in on the mechanisms for controlling mass claims, uh, such as class certification uh, and other mechanisms for dealing with mass claims that we're seeing uh, in antitrust uh, litigation in Europe, uh, United States and beyond. So we wanted to start by talking about the US experience for uh, handling class actions, uh, and in particular, talking about the class certification process in the United States. So Julie, I wonder if you'd mind giving us a bit of an overview um, of that topic. Sure, Mark, I'd be glad to. The class certification process is a key inflection point for antitrust class claims in the U.S., the U.S. courts over the last decade have been ratcheting up the requirements for class certification. And today, the class certification process, the class certification hearing, is essentially a mini-trial. There's pre-certification discovery, briefing, expert reports, and expert testimony. And in the U.S., certification is really the ballgame. Once a class is certified, settlement almost always follows. And for global clients, this has implications for mass claims elsewhere. In the U.S., the federal rules of civil procedure and an extensive body of case law have established a roadmap for what a plaintiff must prove in order to get a class certified by a court. And the basics include numerosity, commonality, typicality, and adequacy, but a plaintiff seeking to recover money damages on behalf of a class, and most antitrust plaintiffs are trying to do so, must meet additional requirements that are quite stringent. They must prove that questions of law or fact common to the class predominate over questions affecting only individual members, and show that a class action would be a superior method for resolving the claims. An antitrust plaintiff must prove that injury to the class is capable of common proof. And this requires economic data, expert reports, and typically expert testimony at the hearing. And defendants have had a good bit of success, particularly in recent years, attacking the expert's methodology at the class certification phase, and sometimes even the expert's qualifications. Defendants have also had success attacking the plaintiff's plan for weeding out uninjured class members. A plaintiff cannot meet the predominance requirement if the proposed class contains too many uninjured class members. Now, last week, the Democrats in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress recommended some changes to U.S. laws that could make it easier for plaintiffs to bring antitrust class actions. And depending on the results of the election in November, some of those recommendations could get some traction. 
Even if there's a democratic sweep, however, I do think that many of those recommendations are a long shot. Thanks, Julie. That's you know very interesting. And in the UK at the moment, we're at a real um, inflection point too, actually, in the development of the, the class action regime here. As, as many people will know, we've had a proper North American style uh, class action mechanism on the book since October 2015. And that for the first time is introduced into the UK, opt out class action as well as opt in actions. And we've been dealing since then with a, a series of cases, most of which have been stayed, while the, the first big case to come along, the Merricks and MasterCard class action, has gone all the way up to the UK Supreme Court on questions of certification primarily. We're acting for MasterCard in that case. And it's been really fascinating because it goes to a lot of these questions that you allude to about uh, whether there should be a mini trial or no mini trial at the certification stage. Uh, what sort of detail is the specialist antitrust court we have that deals with these cases, the Competition Appeal Tribunal? Um, what sort of details are allowed to go into at the certification stage in deciding whether or not to allow a proposed class action to carry on? And the two critical questions that have been thrown into relief in that case are, firstly, what's the legal test that the tribunal has to apply in deciding on certification? And in particular, where you have obvious flaws in the proposed expert methodology on which the claimant's uh, case really turns, and those flaws are sufficiently serious that they are obvious from the outset on the face of the claimant's own expert report, how far can the tribunal take that into account in deciding not to certify a claim? Uh, that's a really interesting issue which has been grappled with by the courts in other jurisdictions, such as Canada, uh, which is a, a jurisdiction that um, our legislature and also our courts have had some regard to in figuring out what the answer to that question should be in the UK, and also, of course, in the United States. Uh, and interestingly, here, the intention was very much to avoid exactly the sort of mini trial that you refer to, Julie, as happening in the US very commonly at the class cert stage. So here, the idea is it would be a much more confined inquiry that you wouldn't have days and days and days of expert evidence. And actually, in the MasterCard case, the tribunal was very cognizant of that. You know, it expressly directed itself that it mustn't get into a full-blown mini-trial. There was very, very little cross-examination of the claimant's experts at the certification hearing. There was a certain amount of tribunal-led questioning, but it was pretty light touch. Uh, and what's happened is, on appeal, the tribunal has nonetheless still been criticised and had its decision overturned, um, the decision not to certify the claim, overturned by the Court of Appeal in part because the Court of Appeal felt that the tribunal still strayed into too much of a detailed consideration of this evidence at this stage and still therefore conducted a mini trial. Now on our side of course we don't recognise or agree with that characterisation and a point that we made before the Supreme Court is that that really wasn't a mini trial, especially not if you compare it to the sort of days long, cross-examination heavy, you know, very, very detailed examination of expert evidence that you, know, you would recognise in the United States. So that is one issue. And you know, it seems to me in the UK that one's perspective on it turns a little bit on whether one tends to be primarily defence side as we typically are, or claimant side. And I think in some quarters, there is a bit of a campaign on foot to almost lower the certification bar to try and encourage the development of the regime. And it seems to me, actually, we've had nine of these cases brought in, in under five years, 
sure most of them have stayed until the legal test gets clarified. But that strikes me as not a bad return, actually, in the very early days of this regime. And I don't personally see any need to artificially read down the certification standard to try and generate a greater ease in bringing these cases than already exists, given the very sort of vibrant funding market here and a very sophisticated antitrust plaintiffs bar. Um, just briefly on the other question that we're grappling with, it's, it's to do with a really interesting point about compensation. These class actions, as, as many will know, all turn on um, requests for class-wide damages. And the question arises, does it matter anymore whether you can actually show that individuals in the class will get a payment that is in any way compensatory to any loss they may have suffered? Or put another way, is it a reason not to certify a claim if there's no connection whatsoever with compensation at the individual level, bearing in mind that these are you know, effectively bundled together individual tort claims and tort damages, as we all know, are compensatory. But if that connection is completely lost, because as in a claim like Merrick's, by the um, class representative's own admission, it wouldn't be possible ever to work that out. And so the only way they can frame their claim is on this very abstracted, generalized basis where people just get a flat sum basically per year. Does that matter? And you know, once we get the answers to those questions, we'll really start to see the rest of the regime moving forward as these other cases all currently stayed start moving apace. So I think 2021 is going to be a really, really crucial year for the development of the UK class action regime. But I'm very conscious that the way things are developing in the UK contrasts with what's happening in many civil law jurisdictions, um, where things are following some quite different models with some very interesting outcomes. And Roman, I wondered if you might talk to us about the situation in Germany and some other jurisdictions in uh, continental Europe, uh, and perhaps you know some of the cases that you've been involved in recently, which have really thrown these issues into into stark relief. Yes, absolutely, Mark. So in Germany, we don't have a true class action regime, uh, at least nothing suitable for antitrust claims. So while in 2018, the German legislature introduced the so-called Musterfeststellungsklage, you would translate that to declaratory model action as a reaction to the gaps in the legal system identified with respect to the diesel case, this action is not truly attractive for pursuing follow-on claims. Uh, A, it is limited to declaratory relief only so that individual damages, the compensation you were referring to earlier, must be collected in separate individual proceedings, which leads to a twofold process. And uh, more importantly, it is only available to consumers and uh, many of our cartel damage cases involve non-consumers, commercials on the claimant side. So since uh, plaintiffs' counsel are creative, we see basically two phenomenons in the legal landscape. First, we have uh, multiple claimants, and some of our cases, uh, over 600 individual claimants in one litigation. And secondly, a bundling of claims by way of assignments to special purpose vehicles. Agreed, both approaches don't compare with true class actions, but this is how the need for collective redress, which is certainly there in antitrust matters, is addressed here in Germany. 
With respect to the multiple claims, we have seen courts reacting to it, splitting up the case into more digestible portions, also in terms of subject matter, for example, according to jurisdictions. So there you have a similar approach as in the UK or the US, controlled by the courts over the homogeneity or commonality of, of the claims made by several hundred claimants. And on the other side, we mostly see the assignment models that have first been introduced by the Belgian corporation cartel damage claims in the mid-2000s, and which is now increasingly used by plaintiffs' law firms, such as, for example, the US firm of Hausfeld, to bring antitrust mass claims. Typically, hundreds or thousands of individual claims are assigned to a special purpose vehicle that then acts as a claimant and that typically receives a contingency fee from their customers, which can be in the range of 30 to 30% calculated on the basis of the damages that are eventually awarded. And in addition, these service providers also advertise with covering the costs of the proceedings entirely. So looking at the um, control aspect that we are discussing today, we have successfully challenged such assignment model by arguing that uh, these models violate the German Legal Services Act. Among other things, we have invoked that the bundling of heterogeneous claims creates a conflict of interest for the claimant vehicle because claims with lower prospects of success negatively impact those with better prospects. Also, in a settlement scenario, the poorer claims benefit from the better ones. So while there's no class action regime and therefore no certification issue here in Germany, the same factual problem bringing heterogeneous claims has come up and has led to such claims being not enforceable in a collective manner. Thanks, Roman. I mean, that's really interesting. And Natalia, I wonder if you might be able to comment on the situation in Spain and some of the other key European jurisdictions, France and the Netherlands. I know you've been thinking about all those uh, jurisdictions and ongoing matters recently. Yeah, I think that the interesting thing is to confront the European jurisdictions against the developments that for many, many years have been going on in the US and UK. Subject, of course, um, to the final wording of the Representative Actions Directive and its implementation by the European Union member states. So basically, the landscape in Europe ranges from Spain and Germany, where there is no class action for damages. The Netherlands, which is probably the continental system more resembling to what's going on in the US and UK. Or somewhere in between, as happens in France. So you, what you can see is that different systems seek to have a certain degree of control into class actions, either by controlling who is capable to file. And then you see the contrast between France, which only allows consumer association to file these claims. Only 15 of them are entitled to do so, and only for cases affecting consumers, as compared to what happens in the Netherlands, which allows a non-profit foundation or association be created for purposes of channeling the cases. 
And this situation is, is very much unlike what happens in Germany, as Roman was saying, or what happens in Spain, in where, where we do not have any type of class action seeking for damages. But in any of the cases, what you do see in the regimes, despite the differences, is that there is always a clear interest in exercising some degree of control by requesting individuals to be in the same or similar situation. So at the end of the day, we are seeking to resemble but with a number of years of delay of what's going on in more sophisticated jurisdiction. But I think I have a question for Julie. She was talking about the proposals made by the Democrats in the House of Representatives. So I was wondering, what do you think about the impact of the newest Supreme Court nominee and what can she do in terms of the class action law? Yeah, that's a great question. And Amy Coney Barrett, I think, is expected to be quite conservative, very pro-business, with a 6-3 conservative majority on the court after her appointment. We can expect a further tightening of class certification requirements. I also think that you'll see from her support for mandatory arbitration agreements, and that's one way that companies use to help protect themselves against the threat of class action litigation. So I think we've kind of come full circle as other jurisdictions are seeing more expansive approaches to class actions. In the U.S., we've seen a tightening of class certification requirements over the last decade. Thanks, Julie. I mean, that, that's very interesting. And you know how um, paradoxical if actually the U.S. is tightening up uh, class action certification, uh, just as Europe appears to be moving in the other direction and actually positively encouraging the development of of these regimes. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Natalia. Thanks, Roman. Thank you uh, for listening. If anyone would like further information on the topics we've discussed today, or indeed anything else uh, in relation to antitrust litigation around the world, please do reach out to any of us or to Ashmita Garrett, and you'll find Ashmita's details on the same page where you found uh, this podcast. Thanks all for listening. Have a good day.